like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works by Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I'll be completing a very short series on the short stories uh, from 1966. There were three of them that he published. The first was We Can Remember Before You Wholesale, which of course was adapted into the film Total Recall. Then we had Holy Quarrel. And then finally, uh, this episode will cover Your Appointment Will Be Yesterday. Now, Your Appointment Will Be Yesterday um, was is very much playing off themes and I think, you know, direct devices from Counterclock World. And I actually debated whether to do a full episode on Your Appointment Will Be Yesterday. You know, I skipped a, a story that was unpublished called A Terran Odyssey, but it was well, unpublished in his lifetime, but published in the collected works of Philip K. Dick. But this was essentially just chapters of Dr. Blood Money, so I didn't want to uh, trot over that material again. So I, I just skipped that one, and I thought about doing that with this one, but this story came out first before the novel, and and I therefore, I guess I think I should just be kind of reviewed on its own terms and, and you know, it was presented to the world as a distinct piece, which I think a Terran Odyssey really wasn't, you know, and it never really came out until afterwards when everyone had already read Dr. Blood Money, had a Terran Odyssey come out before Dr. Blood Money, and then, you know, we could discuss the change maybe then. But, you know, I think in this case, though, it does, it is a standalone work. Um, now, as I, as I mentioned in the last episode when I was previewing this, I did not like Counterclock World. I have trouble getting through it. Uh, you know, I, I really only read it once and I was not that impressed. And I don't really like this story either. Um, and I, I just think I don't really buy the way uh, the reverse time stuff works. I, I know I shouldn't take dicks too seriously, but, you know, there's no payout in, in terms of theme, I think, at least not in the sense there's a lot of stuff that doesn't pass, you know, hard science fiction muster in dicks work, you know pretty much none of it but there's always kind of interesting ideas that hover around his writing in this one I don't really get that feeling that there's not much I get out of it but anyways I will will give you some of my thoughts on it and and tell you what's in this story and then give my analysis now just to start out with the everything you know time is supposed to work in reverse in this story, but not everything is reverse. I think this is a real problem with it. I, I suppose it'd be really difficult to write a story where everything happened in reverse, but it's it's not very consistent on how this this really works. Um, so some things go in reverse time, not everything does. Meals consist of going from your body to the plate, for instance. People rise from the dead. Instead of dying, people instead of dying, people enter the womb of a nearby woman. So they kind of, you know, they they get younger and younger and younger, and then and enter the womb of of someone. Yet in order to keep the backward progress of time going, agencies need to actively remove knowledge from existence, right? So books 
do not disappear when when they're unwritten they, they need to be burned right so why aren't books being unwritten I'm not quite sure um, but actually the government has to go around and like burn books which seems kind of something you that happens in progressive time right other things seem to go on as normal. Mourning is still mourning, right? So it, it's a really kind of odd and weird device, and I don't know if it fully works, and maybe someone who's read Counterclock World you know, more recently than I have can can tell me what I'm missing about this. I, I mean, I guess there's interest, There's kind of fun stuff in, in this. It maybe be kind of cool to adapt if it was done right, but I just think it's too inconsistent about, about how time's work, working here. Anyways, the story. Uh, Niels Leher gets up and prepares for the day. He works in an agency that destroys knowledge as it's scheduled to become unknown. So as time's going backward, you know, I guess in theory, if they would get to, you know, 15, 17, then, you know, kind of have to erase whatever Luther wrote, right? Because can't have that in the world anymore. So his current task, though, is to remove the ex invention of Ludwig Engs called the Swabble. This is, this is a very <laughs> Philip K. Dick name for an invention. You had the swibble before, right? And these kinds of weird things. This, this is the swabble. Normally, it's the inventor's job to uninvent their own thing. But Leher's agency has to sometimes take a more active role in the process. Leher receives a call from his lover, Charisse, who asks his help for a friend. He wants an official eradication for his thesis to help expand his prestige. He hesitates. I mean, it's it's like the girlfriend's friend, so he doesn't really want to help him too much. But he he is eventually convinced to help when he learns that the young man, his name is Lance Albernot, knows the Arnock Peak. The Arnock Peak is some official high-level person in this world. And that he this person, Lance, is also a member of the Free Negro Munici Municipality. And Although it's one of his more moderate voices of this kind of radical black organization. So he says, I'll go look into it and I will try to, I'll help him eradicate his thesis. So Layer goes to the library he works at and he's met by a robot. The robot introduces himself as owned by Carl Gannix, a lawyer, but Layer asks to call him Carl Jr. Kind of a joke, I guess. The Carl's robot is Carl Jr. Throw the robot through the robot Gantrix context layer and tells him that he fears that the Hogarth phase. Now, the Hogarth phase is the thing that makes humans live in this reverse time, and that it's planned to be obliterated <coughs> in respect to the Arnark Peak. Now, the Arnark Peak is also at this time about to be absorbed into a woman's womb because that's part of this reverse aging that people go through. If this works, Peak will be virtually immortal. Gannix knows but does not tell layer that Ludwig Eng has a meeting yesterday with the Arnock. So meanwhile, yes, so the yesterday, I mean, tomorrow was actually yesterday. <clears throat> Eng is trying to convince Arnock Peak of the Free Negro Municipality to air an announcement urging people to build swabbles before the final copy of the book describing how to make them is destroyed. Peak, who is now only a boy, hoping someday to be Arnock, because everything's happening in reverse, of course, he does not fully understand the request. Peek wants to ask his father, who has recently been revivified. He died and now he's back alive again. I guess people just, I guess they come out of the ground, actually. They kind of waken as zombies almost and, and come out of the grave as old people. He's asking, he wants to ask his father for permission. Peek's bodyguards urge him to try to see him again yesterday. Of course, all right, the 
backwards time again. So see him yesterday. Now, Gannix, this Carl Gannix is superior in the Clearness Council. And I think the Clearness Council is that which is working on, on making things. That his superior is named Bar Chai. He discusses how it seems that the Hobart phase has been reversed for Eng, ensuring that this invention will not be unmade. Since the invention of the swabble served to actually direct the Hobart phase and, and initiate this backwards time existence thing, you know, it's it would kind of create an infinite loop. That's the concern, right? The uninvention of the swabble would reverse the process and it already has resources for the inventor. So this will create this infinite loop in which we'll kind of constantly be uninvent, like re-switching back and forth in time. You know, we'll go forward in time and then we'll go backwards again. Um, and it's kind of a loophole because of the invention of this, of the swabble. The Hogarth phase uh, will be reversed and the invention of the swabble will go ahead again, again reversing the Hogarth phase, causing time to go back again. Eventually time will be stalled into a single moment, almost like a, a pendulum, right, that swings back and forth, goes back and forth, and eventually, if, it lo if it's losing momentum, it will just kind of be stuck in, 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 in a set position. Gannix realizes that the only solution will be the rebirthing of Eng. So uh, later, or before, uh, Leher is at work. Eng does not arrive for the meeting, and he receives a phone call from Carice. So Leher gets his phone call from Charisse, his, his girlfriend. She confesses that she is Lance's mistress and wants Leher to officially obliterate the thesis because that will require Leher to read it and then she can find out what it says about her because she thinks that he's she's in the thesis so she basically wants him to spy on this thesis. I, I don't really know why Charisse has, can't read it herself but um, she kind of gives this job to Leher to unmake the thesis which would require him kind of reading it. Now, this makes him very disinterested in the thesis, obviously. Earlier, Lance Aubernot comes to see Leher with his thesis that he wants officially obliterated. It describes how to disassemble Swabble. So that's what his thesis is about. He explains that only his thesis will, bal will balance Eng's work preventing the disintegration of the Hobart phase. He arranges for the syndicate to look at the thesis, and Leher wonders if he will need his first shave in over 20 years a few hours earlier. So I guess during the day, right, you 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 wake up with a full beard and then it goes away by night, right? So you never have to shave. Anyway, so he just thinks that maybe the events are, are in motion that will put an end to this backwards time. So um, that's the story. Um, your appointment will be yesterday along with Counterclock World begins with a fairly interesting idea. I think there's some possibilities here. It's really hard though to imagine how society would function or what life would be like if time really did run backwards in all things, right? Dick, I think, made a valiant effort here in the, the Encounter Clock world and this short story to describe what it might look like and what the social, political, and cultural consequences would be. I think it's really interesting, this idea that works then have to be, because it seems physical material stays, and, you know, inanimate objects stay, so they have to actually be physically destroyed inventions have to be phased out as as time goes back. That's kind of interesting, you know, and the, the act of trying to work out, you know, ideas have to be removed <clears throat> from, from existence. But at the same time, people are fairly linear here. They still act towards goals. They still have jobs that they complete. They, they do tasks. The Hobart phase 
is pretty arbitrary on what is moved backwards, right? Even in the sense that, okay, you could say maybe people are moved backwards, but material objects stay. That's why inventions have to be unmade. But then still people still talk in a forward way, right? And so not, it's, it doesn't really work for me. But if we, you know, but if we cut down to what Dick's trying to do here, people are given a form of immortality here. The dead are risen from the graves. The elderly get to live out the rest of their lives backwards. Um, I suppose those who are still young and under the Hobart phase will be robbed of some of their life. But in general, people seem to accept the Hobart phase because it means a life of perpetual youth, right? Or at least, you know, you get to de-age. And so there's some attraction to this idea of de-aging, I think. Um, the cost of this, though, is clearly stated. That's the gradual destruction of knowledge, of culture, of innovation. Yet, we can live out our lives as youth. Our lives can be extended, but at the cost of the end, end of our innovation. So there might be a theme here. I might be overreaching and overthinking this, but you know, the cost of, of a life of innovation and progress is, is death, right? And if we don't want to have death, if we want to live in a perpetual youth or get younger, we're going to have to essentially become dumber as a, as a collective you know, species, eventually become ch children. And I know there's some, probably some people who want to go back to their youth and all of us at some point in our lives, I'm sure say, if I could go back to when I was 20, I would do this, that different. Um, but the cost of that, of course, is you lose what you've gained through, through aging, right? So I think there is a kind of a philosophical dilemma here, which is dealt with and it could be dealt with in an interesting way. I, I wish it would have been done a little bit um, perhaps better. The government here, I, I really think it's interesting what the government's doing, especially this agency called the syndicate, which has this leadership to ensure that inventions are uninvented, books are unwritten, and ideas are unthought. It's a really hard job, of course, but necessary to ensure that entire system works. Because I guess what they want to avoid is, you know, you're suddenly in the Middle Ages with laser guns or something, and then that may unbalance things. So we're thus in the story placed in a world without time, and that's actually the threat at the end, like when this will be uninvented, the, the swabbles will be uninvented, then time will go back to being forward, but then the swabble will be simply reinvented again, and then we'll go back, and you'll eventually be stuck in that moment uh, with the invention of, of that Hobart phase or whatever. So we end up with the possibility of a world without time. At, at one point, a character reminds us that we can only know the future that we know that can only know the future, but we cannot know the past, right? There's some truth to this, perhaps. Um, year to year, we are getting better at perhaps predicting the future. Um, we know when, like, the next movies are going to come out. We know there's going to be a new iPad. We have a basic idea of what kind of games or films will be popular in the near future. The internet is full of speculation. Much of it informs, and much of it not. But th someone is right, you know. Like every blockbuster movie, there's five dozen. Th theories out there, at least one of them is right. So there is kind of a collective fortune telling that we're fairly good at. But people seem to know less and less about the past, right? The humanities have been brutalized over the past few decades. They're not seen as valuable. They're disinvested in by our universities. Even educated college students are proven to know only the bare minimum about the past, right? But they can often speak about an expected future. So that might be kind of an interesting idea of, of let's, let's try to go back to a world where the past is something we're, we're, we're striving, we're stepping towards. We're not going back in time, though, but we're living in a world that is kind of always dwelling in the future. Like our characters here are always, their memories are from the future, not from the past. 
And I, I think that's kind of cool. I, I just wish the story was done a little bit better in a more convincing way. So um, that's that's the that's your appointment will be yesterday. Um, so that's you know. Let me know what you think about that. Um, you can if you have thoughts about Counter Clock World. I'll be doing a, you know the the full episodes on Counter Clock World in the future. So. Uh, you know, I'll get to that eventually. But if you have any comments on this short story, please leave them below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, and, um, and I'll, I'll respond I, um, when I get a chance. So what's coming up next? Well, well we have some stories from, some novels from 1967 to look at. And then um, we'll have a couple short stories from 1967. So we're done with 1966 with this with this episode, and and we a lot of good works published 1967 for us to look at. So we'll we'll start as always with the novels, and then go back and look at the the two short stories that were published that year. This is actually a pretty big breakout year for for F Philip Dick. Um, it's, he published his very famous story, The Faith Faith of Our Fathers, that year. So with that, I am going to sign off. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I'll see you next time with the novels of 1967. If you